for some kinky individuals, the kink activity, the kink interest is more important than the gender, the sexual orientation of their partner. So I don't care who's spanking me as long as I'm being spanked well. This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. As I've said on this show many times before, ever since people started having sex, they started having kinky sex. Kink is not new by any stretch of the imagination. But kink practices have certainly changed somewhat over time, as have people's opportunities to explore and experiment with kink. And this is especially true in the modern digital era that we find ourselves in. Technology is transforming kink, and that's the subject of today's episode. We're going to talk about how technology has opened up new ways for people to explore their kinks, whether technology itself is making us kinkier, and where kinky interests come from in the first place. We're also going to explore how the mainstreaming of kink, a la Fifty Shades of Grey, has changed the landscape, as well as why kink has suddenly become controversial at LGBTQ pride events. I am joined once again by Liam Wignall, a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Brighton. He specializes in research on kink and BDSM, looking at the impact of internet and community engagement on identity formation. His book, Kinky in the Digital Age, explores how kinky gay and bisexual men navigate kink in contemporary times with an in-depth analysis of the pup play subculture. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. The Handy is a Scandinavian pleasure device like no other. It's an adult toy for anyone with a penis that enables new sexual experiences through interactive technology. The Handy can be synced with online content from multiple adult websites to offer immersive experiences, meaning that what you see is what you feel. It also has a remote control function so that you can enjoy partner play together or long distance. In fact, your partner can control your Handy from anywhere in the world. The easy-to-use controls allow for a custom experience. Plus, there's a hands-free mounting accessory and a variety of sleeves to choose from for targeted sensation. To learn more, visit thehandy.com or check the show notes for the link and get 10% off your purchase with discount code SEXANDPSYCH. Take your pleasure to the next level with The Handy. Are you passionate about building a career in sexuality? Look no further than the Sexual Health Alliance. With Shaw, you'll connect with world-class experts and join an engaged community of sexuality professionals from all around the world. Whether you're just beginning your journey or are in the process of building advanced skills, Shaw's comprehensive certifications, engaging events, and self-paced online training will move you beyond the basics and set you up to be a rising star in the field. Visit SexualHealthAlliance.com and start building the sexuality career of your dreams today. The Kinsey Institute at Indiana University has been a trusted source for scientific knowledge and research on critical issues in sexuality, gender, and reproduction for over 75 years. Watch for presentations and papers from Kinsey Institute faculty and students at this month's meeting of the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, which will be held in New Orleans. Learn more about research and upcoming events over at kinseyinstitute.org or look for them on social media at Kinsey Institute. 
Okay, Liam, so you recently published a book titled Kink in the Digital Age. Now, before we go on, I wanted to ask for your definition of kink. When I ask people about this, I find that they're kind of all over the map. You know, kink in some ways seems to be a subjective term because what's kinky to one person might be considered vanilla to the next. So how do you define kink? I mean, this is what I thought would be the the main thing within the book. Every single book I've read on kink or every article, it, as you say, kind of it has to start with the definition of kink because it's a very nebulous term. It, it means different things to different people. I tried to search for a definition that did everything I wanted it to, and the majority of them did, but tended to miss out one thing. So some didn't ra- recognize the sexual components. Others didn't bring in the importance of gear or fetishization of body parts, etc. So I kind of describe kink as a collection or spectrum of sexual or erotic activities outside of normative versions of sex undertaken for various different forms of pleasure. And it can include a range of different activities. And I provide examples to give an indication, such as the exchange of power or performativity of this. Pain is often a central component within kink. The wearing of gear or fetishization of body parts or objects. A recognition that the activities engaged in are consensual. And one of the things that picks up on your question, the shared understanding that the activities are kinky. So your book is all about how technology has transformed kink for gay and bisexual men. So on average, gay and bisexual men are kinkier than their heterosexual counterparts. But that was true even before the internet came along. So let's start there. Tell us a little bit about the kinky history of the queer community and how far back we can trace it. I know it's a big subject, there's a lot that could be said, but give us the short version. The short version is kink has been around since forever in different forms and different variations, depending on kind of definitions and understandings, etc. In terms of the overlap between the queer community and, and kink, research shows us that there has been kind of a strong link between them with different suggestions as to why. One of the ones that I think is quite powerful is an argument made by Gail Rubin, who talks about this idea of the charmed circle. And you have good versions of sex and sexuality, such as heteronormative or straight. You have sex for love, you have sex for procreation, you do it indoors. And then you have bad versions of sex, like homosexuality, sex outside marriage, sex outdoors, pornography, marital aids, etc. Or sex toys. Queerness has always tended to live on the outside of, of this kind of good, bad, dichotomy of sex. Even in 2023, there's still examples of marginalizations of queer communities. So I think it's almost an element of, well, I'm already marginalized. Why don't I explore this other marginalized activity is one component. There's also a potential idea that sexual minorities are more sexually liberal and have had opportunities to think about sex differently. Drawing on my own experience, growing up as a sexual minority, not knowing other gay men not seeing examples of it, not having sex education around it. It forced me to almost view life through this sexual lens, through this gay lens. And, you know, it still kind of shocks me today to to wonder what is it like for a heterosexual, cisgender, vanilla individual to kind of grow up and not have sex as the way that they live their lives, the way that they view their world. So because of that kind of viewing the world through this kind of sexualized lens, maybe there's a potential that they are more likely to explore and see other things. Yeah, so I think potentially more liberal attitudes through that sexual lens and the double marginalization. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, you know, something I've talked about in my work before is that I think there is that tendency for people who've already violated one norm with regard to sexuality, it makes it less costly to violate other norms so it can open the door to exploring your sexuality in other ways. But I think it might also be the case that people who are already kinky to begin with might be more willing to acknowledge same-sex or same-gender attractions. And so I think it can kind of go in both of those directions, but there can be a few different explanations for this. And for some kinky individuals, the kink activity, the kink interest is more important than the gender, the sexual orientation of their partner. So I don't care who's spanking me as long as I'm being spanked well. <laughs> That's probably going to be used as a soundbite to haunt me. Um, but <laughs> You know, I was just thinking I, I should start the show with that. I don't care who's spanking me, just spank me well. <laughs> Wignall 2023, you heard it here first. Um, but like, there, there is that level of, and I said it in the previous episode related to pub play, that at these events you can see a whole different range of, of people, bodies, genders, etc. In certain kink environments, the person who gets the most attention is the person who can tie ropes the best. It's not about youthfulness or attraction. It's how quick can you suspend me from the ceiling and make me feel good. Yeah. And that goes back to something we were discussing previously about how when it comes to kink, it's not always sexual. You know, it's it's always relational, but only sometimes sexual. So Something you talk about in your book that I found to be really interesting is that if you look back at books on kink, most of the older books that exist were really focused on the gay and lesbian communities. Today, however, most kink books are focused on heterosexuals, and a lot of them are focused specifically on women. And I can't help but wonder if that's the byproduct of kink kind of going mainstream in recent years. I mean, we live in the Fifty Shades of Grey era, after all. But I'm curious for your take on this. You know, how is the mainstreaming of kink changed research on kinky sex? I think there's been a focus from contemporary researchers to further the work that demonstrates kinky individuals are just like anybody else except kinky. And that has potentially been easier to do with heterosexual samples, with pansexual samples. The research agenda has been around normalization and increasing acceptance, etc. The other reason I think, and it's kind of a big critique I make of the majority of kink research is the use of FetLife to recruit participants. That when surveys came along and online websites and the opportunity to recruit people quite easily, FetLife, one of the earlier kink websites, which still exists today, tended to be the go-to for individuals to recruit people to take part in research on kink. So these other kind of kink websites catering to other sexual minorities, gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans individuals, they've tended to be generally kind of underused. I recently did an edited book on kink, The Power of BDSM, and my main chapter in there is arguing that the research that we know, I think it's an insight into FetLife users rather than kinky individuals more generally. So it was one of the things I really wanted to push in this book that I didn't go to FetLife to recruit my participants because the majority of FetLife users tend to be heterosexual or pansexual. So I went to other websites which cater primarily to gay and bisexual men. It was kind of bizarre that in this area of sexuality, the views and experiences of gay and bisexual men were underrepresented because normally it's the complete opposite in, in sex research. 
Yeah. And that's such an important point about any kind of online research is that if you're only going to one community, you're really only able to speak to that specific community. And that's why it's important to sample broadly. You know, it might be easier to go in and target like one specific community. Maybe it's the only one that you're aware of, but you're only getting a slice of that population when you're doing that. Now, related to this mainstreaming of kink that's happened where we're seeing more of it in the popular media, something I find super interesting as well. Increasingly, we see it all around us. People seem more open to it. At the same time, it seems to have become somewhat more taboo in the LGBTQ community. And I say that because every year when Pride Month rolls around, there are these heated debates about whether it's okay to incorporate kink into Pride parades. You know, Pride in general has become pretty sanitized when it comes to sex in recent years, and especially when it comes to kinky sex. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. You know, why at a time when heterosexuals are more open to embracing kink, do we see a lot of LGBTQ people trying to hide it or distance themselves from it? I don't think there's one easy answer for it. And I've certainly seen the the discourse online each year about it. Although I did ponder this year, I saw less discourse and there were other things that were kind of more apparent. So I don't know, maybe the scene or the attitudes are changing. Again, it does make me think of Gail Rubin's work. She's got a chapter in the book Deviations, which talks about the leather menace and how progress was made for lesbian and gay individuals sort of by saying, look, we know we're different from you, but we're not as different as those people. We know that you think that we're bad, but we're not as bad as those people. And almost kind of pushing specifically kinky individuals down to achieve progress. The things that Ruben talked about, I think we're witnessing again now, because it's not just kind of kink activities that are being vilified or demonized by sexual minorities. For gay and bisexual men, one of the things I've often seen is this kind of knee-jerk reaction of, oh, I'm not in an open relationship, because they tend to be kind of more common within gay and bisexual men. And then you see these individuals who almost put themselves on a pillar and say, well, actually, I prefer monogamy. I prefer closed relationships as if it makes them better. It doesn't. It's, It's different. Absolutely. If that's what you want, brilliant. But I think that it's an easy way to, I don't know, make yourself seem better, that you're unusual, you're different, but you're not that different. And I think it comes back to kind of what you said earlier on around like the mainstreaming of kink and the sanitized versions of pride, that it's the increasing presence of right and wrong way ways to do sex, to engage in sex, and the same for kind of kink, the right ways and wrong ways that kink should be present. You know, by all means, show your sexual orientation, but there's this kind of assumption that kink is this bedroom sexual activity where for some people, it's, it, it is their orientation. For some people, it is their defining aspect of their identity. And they have as much right to be in a pride parade as other random sections of the parade. Yeah, I think there's so much truth to all of that. And, you know, I can't help but think about how, you know, the LGBTQ community talks a lot about tolerance and acceptance and inclusiveness and so forth. But they're not necessarily very tolerant and accepting of other people within the community who might have different sexual practices from them. And so there's still a lot of judgment and intolerance. And I think that that's especially true around issues related to kink and open relationships. And I've seen all of that happen as well. So let's talk about how technology has changed kink. 
So I think one of the key ways that you discuss is that prior to the internet, kinky people kind of had to embed themselves within a local kink community in order to explore their interests. So it was very much about a lifestyle. But with the rise of the internet, it's become much easier to just dip your toes into it. You know, you can find it when you want it. You can be a part-time kinkster, right? So tell us a little bit about that. You know, how has living in the digital era opened up different ways to engage with kink? To understand the digital aspects of kink now, I think it's you know a little walk through history. But you mentioned it was about community investment, but it was a bit further than that. That at times when individuals were engaging in kink and trying to find others to engage in kink with, there were real consequences to identifying as kinky and being found out as kinky within your community. Within You could lose your job. You could be ostracized from a community. You could have your children taken away from you. In some parts of the US, it was illegal to engage in certain behaviors. So people were wanting to find people to engage in, in kink behaviors with, but depending on kind of where they are on the, in the world, and some of this is absolutely still applicable today, they needed to do it on an underground basis. There was still stigma attached to kink activities. It was long before Fifty Shades of Grey, which I always hate coming back to as an analogy, but there was a time before and after Fifty Shades. So kink was sort of pushed underground. If anybody kind of wants an insight into what these kink environments look like, Gail Rubin talks about the catacombs in San Francisco, where to get into the venue, you need to be on the list. You need to be on Steve's list, the owner. You were kind of vetted. You were let in through a recommendation. Once you were in, it was positively cosy, is, is what Rubin describes this environment like. But there was still a level of apprehension in terms of walking up to the venue, in terms of kind of who was allowed and who wasn't. And that story is kind of similar to sexual minorities more generally in terms of when homosexuality was seen as a mental illness and it was in the DSM, illegal, punishable by death in certain parts of the world, and unfortunately still is. Again, there's kind of need to be underground. What the internet allowed was the opportunity to connect with others, to forego kind of geographical boundaries, to find others who kind of had broad interests with yourself, such as kind of a sexual orientation or a really niche one, such as balloon animals. You could find people who shared your similar interests, shared your kind of sexual activities that you want, I don't know, share your sexual interests. The internet, you know, the early iterations kind of connected computer to computer. It was mainly university. It was kind of when web 2.0 came along. So when we think of like Facebook and MySpace and the early social media platforms, and now kind of Twitter, Instagram, although we're seeing difficulties with sex on those platforms and Tumblr, rest in peace, these websites were being used to connect people to other people. FetLife came along and people could suddenly create a profile and connect and message other people. Some of these interactions absolutely stayed online and it was for some individuals just enough to know that there was other people out there who shared their interests. For other individuals, it turned into offline meetings and there was a, a term coined called a munch, which was a monthly lunch that was done. And these were created sort of through these online platforms where individuals could say, hey, do you want to come to this? I don't know, Denny's might be the example in the US and the UK kind of, you see them in Weatherspoons, but just like a local pub uh, where people would go and just chat and meet others like them. Yes, there were opportunities for people to generate sexual connections and, and have hookups and all that kind of stuff. But I think first and foremost, it was about connectivity. It was about connecting with others who were like them. Absolutely. 
So as a kink researcher, something I'm really curious to hear your perspective on is whether the internet and online porn is actually making us kinkier. You know, there's so much out there that's been said and written in the popular media about the rise of kinky content in porn and in the media more broadly, and there's a lot of moral panic going on around it. So what's your take on that? Is technology itself making us kinkier? I've never been asked that before. <laughs> Thinking on on the spot, I don't think it's making us kinkier. I think the increased visibility of sexual content and just increased discussion around it is changing our perceptions and our understandings of sex. So some of the participants I interviewed, when I said to them kind of what is the line between kinky and non-kinky, they sort of described a spectrum and that you have activities that you would put along along the spectrum. So I said to participants, okay, pink fluffy handcuffs, are they kinky? And the general answer was sort of, it depends, but no, that it was kind of because it was the pinkness, it was the fluffiness, it was more just like, for them, it wasn't kinky. It was just like, it was an aspect of sexual play. One participant said, well, no, because it's if it's not black, it's not kinky. It needs to be leather. It needs to be rubber. It needs to be kind of, bondage equipment that is black. So once I said black kinky handcuffs, they were like, yeah, sure, that's kinky. Another participant was a really unique, interesting case that they didn't know the activities they were engaging in were kinky until other people told them they were kinky. So I don't know how PG I can be, but they were engaging in fisting at 18, 19 with their friends. It was a fun activity for them. And then they tried to do it with other people and they were like, what are you doing? This is not an everyday sexual activity. So it was only kind of engaging and speaking to other people. Did they find out that, oh, these activities are are a bit risque, are a bit out there. And that was, I think, 15 years ago when, when they were describing that instance. So certainly less proliferation of sexual content. So I would argue now because we're seeing more examples and we're seeing um, there was a great advert in the UK one year for a Christmas advert for a mainstream shop. And in the living room, a grandparent was reading Fifty Shades of Grey. And it was seen as like a love story, but it's it's a kinky book. doesn't matter whether you like it or not. This is a book about kink on mainstream TV, read by a grandparent in front of the children. So I think perceptions have just kind of like totally shifted. And that's not the internet making us kinkier. The internet is providing us with more information, more opportunities, things to do. Yeah. And potentially allowing people to kind of explore things in different ways. So the internet is allowing people to explore any underlying interests that they might have. One participant was really interested in exploring leather, specifically kind of leather boots. And they knew that pornography was a tool that they could use to do that. So they went in front of the computer um, back in the day when you needed like torrent services and to download rather than just kind of streaming websites. They downloaded a lot of pornography and watched it not initially aroused. They wanted to see what it was like. They wanted to explore it at a safe pace on their own. And they were like, okay, I kind of like this. Next video went on. By the end of their kind of exploratory session, they were like, well, number one, I'm sexually aroused and have an erection. Number two, I think I like this. So it wasn't the internet saying, look, here you go, you might like this. It was the individual kind of more taking on a active, I could explore this. Yeah, I think that's a, a great answer. And it highlights the fact that, you know, kink really is in the eye of the beholder, right? And what you mentioned about how some people don't realize that they're kinky until they're exposed to more information. You know, if 
kink is all you ever knew that you wouldn't think of it as being non-mainstream or anything like that. So going online, taking more of our sexuality online changes a lot about how we perceive our own behavior, how we perceive the behavior of others. Is it necessarily making us kinkier? I don't think so. I mean, there is also the possibility, and I know there is some truth to this, that you know, being exposed to different things online can certainly open the door to new sexual interests. You know, I did ask people in my sexual fantasy research where they think their favorite fantasy of all time comes from. And you have a significant number, I think it was 10 to 15%, who said that they could trace their favorite fantasy back to something that they saw in porn. So it is possible to be exposed to something new for that to awaken sexual interests. But I don't think technology has as big of an effect on, you know, sort of creating interest in things like kink. Like these are all pre-existing interests and maybe it's just giving you a different language to talk about it and a different way to connect with other people. And it's not just pornography when we're thinking about kind of the link between technology and, and kink. For some individuals, it was the Disney Robin Hood movie where there was a scene where somebody was tied up and they said, that was the thing that made me think, oh, that looks fun. Or children's game shows where there was guns used and kind of poured on the contestants and my participants were kind of describing that looks really interesting. Based on that, should we get rid of all Disney films and all children's TV? No. People are going to find things that arouse them, whether it's sexually or non-sexually, in a multiple of different mediums. It's really complex. Yeah, you know, and it reminds me of a question I asked some friends a couple of years ago, where basically I inquired, what movie or television show represented your sexual awakening? And everybody had an answer. Like, they could think of some movie or some TV show that they saw that just resonated with them sexually. And then I went on Twitter and I asked the same question and got a ton of replies to it. Like, a lot of us can trace things in our sexuality just back to things we've been exposed to in the popular media that are not pornography, right? Because our sexuality or sexual interests can come from a lot of different sources. And, you know, I think when we're talking about something like kink, a question I often get from people is, where do kinky interests come from? And I think they can have a lot of roots. You know, they could start with something like a Disney movie where somebody's tied up. And, you know, if, if you're exposed to that at a point in your life, when you start to have your sexual awakening, you can come to associate those things. So there are a lot of different pathways. And just trying to prevent people from having access to porn isn't necessarily going to prevent them from developing kinky interests because they can come from pretty much anywhere, right? Yeah. And it, I do think Freud has a lot to answer for in terms of... Um, <laughs> There was almost an expectation from the participants that I was going to say, tell me about um, your early kink desires, tell me about kind of where they started from. And I think that, again, kind of thinking about Freud and the impact of childhood sexuality, there's almost an expectation that we, do we create these things? Do we try and kind of implant these memories and make these associations? I still think there's so much interest and research to be done to understand how, how sexuality and sexual interests develop from kind of childhood through adolescence to adulthood. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more question about the digital age and our sexuality. And it's whether you think it's been a net positive or a net negative, right? You see a lot of different perspectives out there in the media on this, but a lot of it leans toward the negative. So I'm curious as a researcher, net negative, net positive, or are you just neutral on it? Agnostic? What do you think? I don't think I can be neutral. <laughs> I'm happy to admit that it's mixed. And I explored this a little bit more speaking to Recon.com, who have a podcast around different aspects related to kink. And 
one of the issues that came up were kind of problems in the digital kinky world that you're going to have people who create online profiles and catfish that you see more examples of abuse and just people being rude in in these kind of conversations because they have this kind of digital screen in front of them and it's it's not the real them it's their digital identity and engaging behaviors that you wouldn't necessarily see the people do or people wouldn't do in real life so there's absolutely kind of negatives but and I'm absolutely biased from my research from my own perspective as as a gay man existing in in the digital age whatever that may mean there's absolutely so many different benefits in terms of connectedness in terms of abilities to communicate as new technologies have come along we found ways to incorporate it into our sex lives for better or worse i think it's important to kind of have that comprehensive overview and think how can this benefit individuals what are the potential risks and potentially it's the wrong question to ask is this good or bad because it's always going to be both there's always going to be problems with things such as if mobile phones are kind of used to to have sexual communications to sex each other to send pictures on whatsapp that can allow those individuals to feel connected when they're apart to and we're seeing kind of examples of or more and more examples of relationships people living up, uh, together apart or i forget the correct term so communication is kind of vital to helping that relationship to carry on to allowing these individuals to be sexual with each other at the exact same time a text message or WhatsApp gets sent to the wrong person, a picture goes to the wrong person, uh, a phone is lost, the couple breaks up and there's opportunities for for revenge porn or all those kind of things. There are always risks despite these kind of real tangible benefits. I think that is absolutely the case for kink and digital spaces that there are people who are on these kind of kink platforms every single day connecting with people, speaking with people, developing or have developed real friendships. But then there's individuals who are kind of somewhat scared that their profile might get leaked, that actually they have real negative experiences. I think it's really complex. I think overall, maybe a net positive, but I say that as a a researcher of this topic and wanting to see the benefit and want to see the good in these things. Yeah, it's definitely a mixed bag. And if you think about sex in the era before the digital age, you know, sex, I think in some ways was better, but in some ways it wasn't as good, right? So it's ever evolving. (laughs) You know, sex just evolves alongside how we do. I think that's a, a really key point that in terms of kind of evolving, we also evolve to navigate those risks. I think back to my own sexual escapades using the online platforms, using the kind of different apps, etc. I was like, okay, well, I'm meeting up with a stranger off the internet. What precautions do I take? I know I'll write a note of the address and I'll put it under my pillow. Worst case scenario, there's precautions. And we do the exact same thing now. We're seeing people use things like Snapchat, where the images are are meant to be kind of deleted after a certain amount of time. Once you send them, the message history can kind of vanish depending on your settings. And people feel a bit safer that they're like, oh, I'm not going to send you a photo that you can keep forever. I will send you an expiring photo that you can use and we can, you know, enjoy in this context. If it gets screenshotted or the person saves it, it comes up as a notification, depending on the app. And then there's that clear trust is broken you know, this isn't going any further. So we start to adapt to navigate the risks posed within technology, but then new tech comes along, new risks develop, and it's kind of this continuous cycle, I think. Yep. It is definitely a continuous cycle. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Liam. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your book, Kink in the Digital Age? Your listeners can go to Oxford University Press and 
King of the Digital Age is there. And my new book, The Power of BDSM, which is an edited collection of academics from across the world on different components of kink. Can I send you the, the discount code, Justin, to put in the description? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I'm on Twitter, at Liam Wignall, but I don't know how long that will last. I have a blue sky, but I don't know what I'm doing on there. Yeah, if you type in my name, you'll find me in various places. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm most active on Instagram, at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Hold up. 